0: Well, last week you were blessed with an awesome uh, teaching from First from Second Samuel chapter eight, and I loved listening to Tony's uh, teaching from that passage of Scripture and reminding us of the big view of the victories that God gives us uh, ultimately through Jesus, and the importance of living into and establishing garrisons. In our life, that can propel us towards victory and sustain us in the midst of battle. And I know you were blessed by it, and I was certainly uh, challenged and blessed as I listened to it. And this morning, as we continue in our journey through 2 Samuel, we turn to an interesting story, uh, almost a surprising kind of little story that happens between David and a man named Mephibosheth. But before I start, I want to tell you a story that does not uh, put me in great light. So that's always a good way to start, right? When I, when I went off to study at seminary, Rachel and I had been married for like a year, a year and a half. We moved to Chicago to start this whole new experience, and I was so excited to start seminary, and I had all of my, uh, all of my books, and I was walking up the middle of campus and because I used to so you in a secret, because I used to be a superstar basketball player, you're laughing already because you know it's not even possibly true. Uh, and you're right to laugh. I had I had played basketball in youth group and landed on someone else's foot and completely like destroyed my ankle. And so every once in a while, and I pray God that it doesn't happen here today, my right ankle will simply just give out, and I'm left either. Completely off balance to fall in front of everyone or balancing on one leg. And so it's my first day on campus at seminary, and I'm walking around looking scholarly, and I'm walking up these outside uh, concrete steps at school. And as I'm halfway up the steps, you know what's about to happen, right? My right ankle gives out, and all of my books go flying in the air, and I hit the ground and roll down one flight of steps. And there are tons of people just looking at me thinking, no one touched that guy. <laughs> what just happened, right? What's worse is after seminary, when we were back in Pennsylvania, we were attending a new church. I think we'd only been there a couple of weeks. And church was over, and we were walking out of church, and Jackson was little. And I was carrying, I think I've told you this story before, I was carrying Jackson, and all of a sudden, my right ankle gave out, and I didn't know what to do. I, like, I had this moment of thought of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to crush my son as we fall into the parking lot. So uh, in, in, a mo- in a Hail Mary sort of moment, right, I tossed Jackson into a bush that was right there. <laughs> this is true. And I fell and collapsed in front of everyone who again looked and said, no one touched that guy. What just happened? Uh, And in both new ways, I was able to introduce myself. And I would say, in some ways, I named myself by shame, right? It was not a good performance. And what I think we can sometimes realize is that all too often, we have been named by shame. Not because we collapse in the middle of a new school setting, or not because we heroically toss our child into a bush to save his life and collapse in front of a a whole bunch of new church family people. But because we have allowed our brokenness to define us, we're named by shame. And in this story, we are going to find a man who has been named by shame. And what we're going to see is that the covenant loving kindness of God is able to rename him. And that, my friends, is the greatest hope that we can have together. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. This is what the story writer says. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. David, who is now kind of sitting uh, in the moment of conquering all, the kingdom is spread all over uh, the, the Abrahamic covenant promise that God had made, David has a royal palace. David has this promise of longevity from God. And he's sitting there and we're wondering, what is he going to do next from this position of power? And it says, David asks, Is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You might remember Jonathan from earlier in the story in in 1 Samuel. Jonathan is King Saul's son who is also David's closest friend. Is there anyone from the house of Saul who I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. And Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So king David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, He bowed down to pay him honor, and David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba and Saul's steward and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him. Bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. There's this little parenthetical statement. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. What the storyteller wants us to know is he's a wealthy dude. Okay? Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Mekah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. So we have this interesting and somewhat stunning and compelling story of David seeking out Mephibosheth. And for us to even begin to understand what's going on here, we have to get at the core point of the story. And so there's this word that's repeated time and time again through this story. Did you catch it? It's the word kindness. Kindness. And the word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, right? And hesed is not just sort of this, this kind of uh, personality character, character or trait that allows someone to be nice to someone else. It's actually a covenant word that describes God himself. Now, we've talked a lot about covenants throughout this, this uh, journey through 2 Samuel. And a covenant, at its basic definition, is really an agreement or a pact that is, that is comprised or built on a promise. Right? So if you're thinking about a covenant, it's a pact, an agreement that is built on a promise. And God, of course, is the ultimate covenant maker. He's made a covenant with Adam. He's made a covenant with Noah. He's made a covenant with Abraham. He affirmed it with Isaac and then with Jacob. And then he makes it again with David. And God's covenants are known by his hesed. That is, we can characterize them by hesed, and we can be certain of God's faithfulness to keep them, because of his hesed. So the most famous and important passage in the Old Testament that speaks to God's covenant loving kindness is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And let me just summarize it for you. In Exodus chapter 34, a couple of important things have happened. God has given the people his law, the big Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And do you remember what happens when Moses brings the law down? The people doing good stuff, or are they doing not so good stuff, right? They've gathered all the gold. They've made a golden calf. They've said, Moses is taking too long. We've got to figure things out for ourselves. The, the common human plight of rebellion. And as God is burning in anger at the people's rebellion, and as Moses is pleading for them, we have this this important statement about who God is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says He is patient. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love and mercy. It says He forgives sin and rebellion. This is what hesed is. In fact, if hesed was a coin you could say the front of the coin is mercy and the back of the coin is grace, right? Two sides of the same coin. Mercy meaning that the people don't get what they really deserve. And grace meaning that God gives humanity the things that they don't deserve. So it's not just withholding from people the punishment they deserve for their rebellion, but it's also the giving of God's blessings in spite of of their rebellion this at its core is has said and so when this word kindness is showing up time and time again if you are reading it from an old testament understanding the flashing lights are going off wait a minute we're talking about the character of god here and if you turn back a little bit in the story of david in first samuel chapter 18 through 20 we see this relationship between david and Jonathan. Now Saul is the king and everything in history and everything in context would lead you to believe that the next king will be Jonathan. He's the crown prince. He's the firstborn. He's the one should who should rise to control. But God had anointed and selected David. So David quite naturally becomes an arch enemy of Saul and you would think that he would also be the archenemy of Jonathan. But Jonathan loves David. So much so, in the beginning of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, Jonathan takes his royal robe, and he takes his royal garments, and he lays them down at the feet of David, and he says, you are the rightful king. And David responds through the next couple of chapters by affirming that he will protect Jonathan and that he will protect his offspring. And from this, a covenant relationship is built between Jonathan and David. And so when this chapter opens, we see David looking to make good on the covenant promise he had made to Jonathan. Now, a couple of things should stun us about this. It has been probably at least a couple of decades since this covenant was made. Jonathan had died in battle, and he had been gone for a long time. And if David were anything like us normal humans, we would think, well, that was kind of an interesting thing I had promised back then. But things have changed, right? After all, the house of Saul has been rising up against David time and time again. And yet... We do not see the offspring of Jonathan coming to David and saying, remember the promise you made? Instead, we see David being the initiator and going after the offspring of Jonathan to say, remember the promise I made to your father. I mean, this is stunning. And so then, He finally reaches this guy, Ziba, uh, who has been making all kinds of profit off of Mephibosheth. And he finds out that there is a son of Jonathan, and his name is Mephibosheth. And and he comes before him. And and there there are three things, really, that happen in this story that, contextually speaking, and just being honest about our, our broken humanity, would lead us to say that David should just do away with Mephibosheth. Right? And that's what would happen in that context and culture all the time. The first is that Mephibosheth is a constant reminder of the opposition of Saul towards David. Right? He's the offspring of Saul. And just like Ishbosheth, and just like Abner and all the other people who've been popping up in this story, they're constantly making life difficult for David. And then secondly, the appearance of Mephibosheth could be a compromise to the authority of David in some way. After all, he is the son of the true crown prince. Could his presence stir up some controversy in the midst of the nation? And so for both of those reasons, that's why incoming kings in that day, the first thing they would do, it's hard for us to understand, is they would exterminate what was left of the old kingdom so that they would have free reign and rule, and nothing to come against them, and yet David is not willing to do it. And then, and this is difficult, but we have to understand it in the context of the day. As David looks at Mephibosheth, he sees a couple of things. One is, he has no influence. He has no means, no wealth, no identity left. And in his Physical humanity, he's a crippled man. It says he's lame in both feet. Now, if you go back to chapter four of Second Samuel, you know the tragedy that is this story. It's at the death of Jonathan and the conquering by the Philistines of the nation that Mephibosheth is picked up by his caregiver to run away and she drops him as a child, and from that he's paralyzed in his Legs, not even anything of his own doing, but really brought on to him because of his grandfather's rebellion against God. But in that day, to look at someone like Mephibosheth for a royal king who needs power and influence is to say, this is a guy who has absolutely nothing to offer me. You see that? Absolutely nothing to offer me. And yet, David moves forward. You know what's interesting about the story is that not only did, did, would David know this, but Mephibosheth knew this was true of himself. He knew he was the offspring of Saul. He knew he was the son of the crown prince. And he knew he had nothing to offer. And so, uh, two things really happen in Mephibosheth's expression before David. The first is that he's terrified, right? So much so that David has to say, don't be afraid. Because he probably knows what's about to happen to him, right? It's about to be over for him. And so his last sort of plea, and some of us have done this, right? So let's not get too hard on Mephibosheth, is I'll be your servant. Right? This is what he says I'll be your servant. You ever done that? Ever found yourself in a tricky spot? You say, God, if you get me out of this one, I'll serve you forever, right? Uh, There's funny stories to that, and then there's true stories to that. Remember Martin Luther? He decides to become a monk, changes the course uh, of history, is a huge proclaimer of the gospel. We all stand on his shoulders. Why? Because he got caught in a lightning storm in an open field, and he prayed to God, if you save me, this is his words, I'll become a monk, right? And it happened, right? So, he had a Mephibosheth kind of moment, right? We've had those. You know, you don't study for your exam at Lehigh University and you're like, God, if you come through for me, I'm going to reach 17 people for Jesus next semester. You know? know? God, if you come through for me in this moment, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to get things right. Things are going to be different. Mephibosheth's like, I'll serve you. And David's like, no. This isn't about you serving me. It's actually about me serving you stunning isn't it and whereas david withholds what some would see in the culture as the rightful punishment to this man and therefore is merciful his has said is not just defined by the front side of the coin that is mercy it's also defined by the back side of the coin which is grace and he says not only are you not going to serve me but I'm going to do three things that are going to blow your socks off. Did you catch these three things? The first thing he does, and, and this is easy to miss, is he calls him by name. The storyteller is very careful to just refer to him as a son, a son, a son, a son. And he's very careful to refer to David as a king, a king, a king. And then when their interaction comes, suddenly he's no longer the king, he's David. He's just a regular dude. And suddenly the son is now named, has a name. And his name is Mephibosheth. Now imagine kind of living a lowly life out somewhere and kind of keeping to yourself and having an identity that was ripped away from you and being brought before the most powerful person in all of the land. And he starts it out by calling you by name. But the king knows your name. That he's acquainted with who you are. Now, on some level, that could be terrifying too, right? And so we get a point of why Mephibosheth Mephibosheth is kind of shaking in his boots. We would be too, right? You sometimes like for the teacher not to know your name. And when they call you by name, you know it's because you're about to be punished, right? I had a teacher, um, a psychology teacher in high school. It was an elective class. It was my spring semester, my last. I just had to pass the class and be done. I had no interest in it. I, I sat in the back, and the teacher never, we never interacted with anything, with ever. I never heard him say my name, I never raised my hand in class, I just wanted to get through it. And this teacher, um, he had hearing aids, and he, he couldn't hear anything, because he, he had been like a target shooter and never used earplugs. And so students would just not be nice to this guy. They would say horrible things to him, and he never heard them, never acknowledged it but he offered this one assignment that I thought was beneath me as a student, right, as a high school senior, and so I muttered under my breath, I'm pretty sure I didn't say it very loud, this is stupid, and the teacher uttered my name, right, Adam, you think this is stupid, and then I muttered something else, but I was careful not to say it, you didn't hear anything all year, and you heard that, right, So here is Mephibosheth being called by name by the king, and he's afraid, but David follows up calling him by name, saying, don't be afraid. I don't know your name for a bad reason. I know your name for all the reasons I'm going to bless you. Now listen to this. You say sometimes we're named by shame, and Mephibosheth's life kind of looks like shame. I mean, born as the son of the crown prince. I mean, everything is in front of you. And now he's crippled, He's living in a place called Lodabar, which in Hebrew means a no-named town, right? Someone else is caring for him. He can't even care for himself. He can't even harvest his own land. And oh, by the way, Ziba is so wealthy because he's stealing all the wealth, right? Most scholars believe from this guy. And the name Mephibosheth, that boshef at the end, you know what it means in Hebrew? It means shame. He's a man whose life is now known by his shame. What he could have been, but what he actually is. And when David calls him by name, what he's starting to do is say, I'm giving you a whole new identity. And he follows it up with two incredibly stunning things. He says, first, all the inheritance that you were supposed to have that's been taken by other people, it's yours again. Again there's that little jab at Ziba, and you're going to work the fields, Ziba, and all the harvest is going to go to Mephibosheth. Imagine if you're brought before this man thinking, this is it, I'm done, and the words you hear are your name, and don't be afraid, and I'm going to restore to you everything that once was yours. And then, as if there was anything else he could do, he says to him, and you will eat at my table always, right? And for most of us, we're like, well, that's good. Like sometimes we need a meal. When I was a freshman in college, um, at Bible college, uh, meals were horrible, and my grandparents lived in the neighborhood, so I would randomly show up, by randomly I meant every single night of the week, at their house for dinner, because I could eat at their table, and it was a great blessing to me. But what we're talking about here is not just a good meal when there's not great meals offered for you. This is talking about, you will be part of my family, right? So he says, you'll be a son to me always. This is why the Pharisees hated Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's not just about sharing a meal. It's about personally identifying and making family covenant with them. He says, hey, you used to be a son of a king, and now you are again. You see that? Not because you've done something to earn it, But because covenant has said, has washed over you. David is saying, I'm not going to just do this one nice thing to satisfy this covenant. And he's also saying, I'm not just going to kind of tolerate this Mephibosheth guy. He's saying, I'm going to completely embrace him as my own. So the story ends by saying, and he lived in Jerusalem and ate at the king's table Always, this is said, loving kindness, mercy, and grace wrapped up into one beautiful trait of God. But don't you find something interesting about how the story really ends? Because there's that one phrase that is the last part, and we're just like, why did he have to say that, right? The storyteller's like, and he was still lame in both legs. Right? We're like, "This has ended so good. Can we just skip that part? Like why do you have to like turn back to that reality? Because the storyteller wants us to know that while what David has done for Mephibosheth is a wonderful and beautiful picture of the Hesed of our God, it is not the ultimate. Because at the end of the day, Mephibosheth is still lame. Hundreds of years later, a son of David, the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant God made with David would show up on the scene. And he would be called the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Chosen One. Of course, I'm speaking about Jesus. And there was this interesting moment when some of his followers began to doubt if he really was the ultimate fulfillment of God's said to the people. And do you know what he said to them in Matthew chapter 11? Here's how you know. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the poor have heard good news. So what's different? It's not just that this new Messiah, in the same way David was an anointed Messiah, is kind of offering temporary acts of hesed. It's that he has actually come to take take on the reality of Mephibosheth himself. Whereas David poured out blessing on Mephibosheth, Jesus became Mephibosheth. And on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. Remember, he says famously, "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, why?' Have you forsaken me? Scholars believe it's at that moment that the weight and the burden of all the rebellion and sin and evil of the world is put on him. It's the lameness of his legs. And he says in Psalm 22, I am not human. I'm like a worm. It sounds like Mephibosheth saying, why would you do anything to me? I'm a dead dog. And it's in that moment of complete and utterly taking on the depravity and the brokenness of humanity that has said can be unleashed in its fullness to the world. That when Jesus comes back once and finally, all that is wrong will be made right. We will experience, as Tony pointed out last week, a final victory over all things, even as we struggle in them now. God, in Jesus, catch this, has moved towards you. He did not wait for you to come towards him. He remembers the covenant he's made with humanity. And he's coming after us saying, Is there anyone out there that I can unleash Hesed on? And then when we come before him, he calls us by name. And there's this moment when we're like, is this good or bad? <laughs> right? Because we've been named by shame. Most people don't know it, but we know who we are, right? We've been named by shame. And he calls us by name. But it's not a call of name by judgment because we're told by Jesus that he knows the names of those he loves. And he opens wide and he says, what you used to possess in the image of God, I am now Making right what once was your inheritance before your rebellion is now yours again through Christ. And oh, by the way, you don't receive it by promising to be my servant because I'm calling you my son and my daughter. You will eat at my table always. This is the gospel. And before you can really understand it, you have to be willing to admit something. That in this story, we are not David, we are Mephibosheth. Remember in that old classic movie, Spartacus, when the rebellion's about to be crushed? And the Romans want to know, where is Spartacus? You remember what happens? Everyone kind of stands up and goes, I am Spartacus. And other guys, I am Spartacus. And I, this in the Gospel is your I am Mephibosheth moment, right? When you have the courage to admit that the exterior that you have built for yourself is not the true painting of who you are, that you are broken, that you are wounded, that evil that is yours and that the world has borne on you, has crippled you, and the Father, the Creator, the God of the universe calls you by name when you have nothing to offer Him, when you have been part of a rebellious kingship, and He calls you by name and He says, but don't be afraid, because He said, wins the day. And what you once had, you have again, and you will eat at my table forever. Friends, if you've never heard this news before, let me introduce you to Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to tightly. He did not need a throne to unleash the full picture and character of God. Instead, Philippians remind us, he willingly took on the form of humanity. And Philippians says not just humanity but that of a servant because God is not waiting for us to promise service to him he has come to serve us. And welcome you into the family. And as you sit at the table of God and feast on the blessings that flow from his has said, you know what happens? It can't help but change you. This is why the natural outflow of loving God is loving your neighbor as yourself, right? The Bible knows we're okay at loving ourselves, right? On the big part, we're okay. So we've got some issues we've got to figure out, but on the big part, we kind of know how to do that. And So we frame that in terms of, if you, if you love God, you begin to love yourself. Why is that? How does that happen naturally? Because two things happen to you when you begin to admit your are Mephibosheth, and you begin to feast on the Hesed from God. The first is that when you look at everyone else, you stop trying to figure out how you're better than them. And instead you realize they're just as broken as you are. And suddenly love becomes an easy thing to flow out. That's why Jesus can be so audacious as to say in Matthew chapter 5, yeah, some people told you to love your neighbor. What good is that for you? It's easy to love your neighbor. I'm telling you, love your enemy what David did. Fascinating. But not only that, we begin to realize that a great means by which God intends to show his said to the world is through his children. That through us as his ambassadors, that we are known by love, Jesus would say in John chapter 13, we begin to be the epitome of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that says it is the kindness has said of God that leads people to repentance. Repentance, not just falling on your knees and saying I'm a sinner, but a full turning and saying this is who I am. So will you receive the Hesed of God? And will you as his children take up the mantle of ambassador and be agents of Hesed to this world. I know what's going on in your mind, right? But they don't deserve it. You're darn right they don't. That's what makes it Hesed. Can I pray with you?